evening, guys. Excited to talk to you. Um, this semester, we're going to be going through the book of 1 Peter. It's, uh, it's titled, our sermon series is titled, Holy Exiles. And uh, we're going to be learning about what it means to live in the world under persecution in a, a lot of areas. But, um, but also, um, Peter is, is extremely theological in the way he approaches um, his, his communication with the churches that he's speaking to. So without further ado, let's, let's go ahead and turn to 1 Peter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to be going through uh, verse 1 and 2 today. It reads, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that tonight we would be focused, we would be ready to hear as we um, dissect this scripture together, that we look at, so we look at what Peter is saying to the elect exiles in this area, and then what it means for us as Christians, God. I just pray that our minds would be clear, that we would uh, be ready to to hear through the Holy Spirit, we would be empowered to be able to understand and apply tonight. God, I pray that you would uh, get me out of the way, that you would speak, um, and that, that I, would, uh, I would not um, in any way be a distraction, but only seek to glorify you in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I want to start a little bit with the background of, uh, of this book and really who Peter is talking to. Um, and who wrote it. Scholars agree that 1 Peter was written sometime between 60 and 68 AD by the Apostle Peter, obviously, while in Rome near the beginning of religious persecution by the Emperor Nero. Nero was well known for burning Christians. It was a terrible time to to be a Christian in Rome. And we actually know that Peter, uh, most scholars agree that Peter died um, on a cross. Um, He requested that he be crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified the same way that that Jesus was, but he definitely encountered persecution while there, and it eventually led to his arrest and death. His letter here is regarded as a Catholic or universal epistle, so it's meaning that it was sent out to many churches. Unlike Paul's letters, who were written for specific churches, uh, these letters, or the letters of Peter, especially this one, was general and intended to be spread throughout Asia Minor which is basically the, the entire region of Asia Minor is uh, modern-day Turkey today, which is pretty interesting. Um, he's speaking to communities because... Uh, the, he's speaking to communities that were actually likely Gentile, not Jewish. So he's talking to these people that had been taken out of their pagan traditions and were now exposed to Christianity and were facing persecution. So it's kind of this... Uh, you're, you're converted, and now you're in a land where there is no one around you that, that actually aligns with your, your worldview world or your belief. Uh, it was a trying time for these people. He references a lot um, throughout First Peter, their prior pagan traditions and culture. Um, the intention of the letter was to encourage these believing Christians to persevere in the faith in the midst of persecution in order that they might receive an eternal inheritance. This letter, Peter is encouraging these believers to always identify with Christ, not the world, and that they must be ready to endure suffering for the gospel. So the letter starts with Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I want to talk about 
who Peter is. I, I hit that a little bit here. But uh, Peter's a relatively popular figure in the New Testament. He was, he was one of the chosen uh, 12 disciples. He was one of the inner circle, um, along with um, John. And uh, he followed Jesus during the three-year ministry. Um, he states in Matthew 16 that upon Peter's confession of faith, he would build his church. This is, this is the importance of Peter. Um, he's considered to be one of the most well-known. He's mentioned 150 times in the New Testament. And he's, like I said, he's part of James and John, that inner circle who Jesus communicated with most intimately. Um, though he's well-known, his importance can be overlooked, though, because of his tendency to disappoint and fail in various circumstances. Peter's kind of like the klutz of, of the disciples. We constantly see him faltering, whether it be um, walking on water and then, and then sinking because of his lack of faith. At one point, um, after, after encouraging Peter, um, Christ tells him that he's going to die and be resurrected. And, and Peter freaks out and says, no, no, no. And, and Christ immediately rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. Uh, we see Peter is, is well known for denying Christ three times. Um, there's, there's plenty of instances, and I think we see this with many biblical characters, but Peter's one of those where he's right there at the beginning of the church and who God used and uh, who, the, who the Catholic tradition, the Roman Catholic tradition, almost worships um, in a sense. He, he's at the center of all these things, but he's a sinful human being who God, God is using. And that should encourage us as believers that God can use a, a, broken, a broken person like that. Um, Peter observed Jesus' ministry, witnessed his death, met with Christ after his resurrection. He experienced and witnessed what Christ came to accomplish. As an apostle of Jesus, he held a place of authority within the ever-expanding Christian church during that time. Oh, I got water. Thank you. So let's, let's talk about what an apostle is. We're going to really dissect this since this is only two verses. So um, take notes if you have your books that were handed out. Um, we'd love for you guys to take notes because it'll definitely help with the uh, conversation afterwards in small groups. Um, there's a lot to go through, so I'll try to highlight the things that we really need to remember. If we're un- to understand what an, apo- what an apostle was, we have to look at the book of Acts. In Acts 1, 24 through 25, when the apostles were attempting to fill the spot left vacant, vacant after the suicide of Judas, the apostles declare to God, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. The apostleship was started by the disciples of Jesus. These 12 men were called apostles because they were speaking on behalf of God. They were his mouthpiece during the initial stages of the church. They were carried along by the Spirit to write God-inspired letters to the churches, which helped to clarify the gospel and condemn sin and unbelief. They had to deal with a lot of sin and unbelief. There's, there's plenty of, um, immediately upon the beginning of the church, we see them clarifying key doctrines um, and that should also sort of uh, affect us as Christians. I think a lot of times in culture today, we're expected to just, you claim the title Christian, doctrine secondary. Doctrine is what makes us a Christian. So I think that, that that's a really good thing to remember and to see with what the apostles were doing when they were teaching. In Matthew 16, Christ gives the keys to the kingdom and all authority for binding and loosening to the apostles. They're to, claim, they're to proclaim truth and discipline the flock. 
All right, so back to Acts. They, it says, they show, which one of, or show us which one of these two you have chosen to take place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. The apostles are seeking to fill the one slot left by Judas. There's no hint of succession or progressive expansion of the apostolic office. There was 12. We need to fill back in this, this role that has been lost now because of Judas's abandonment. We further see in the second and third centuries the distinctions made between the apostles of the first century and the ministers of all the subsequent periods. So basically, we look at all the church fathers of the second and third centuries, and these men were writing about the apostles in a way that, that exposes that the apostles were there for a certain amount of time. There was no um, consistent succession of apostles. Many, you see in many cults and, and even w- within the Catholic Church, this claim of apostolic succession. But when you actually study the church fathers, there's no hint of that. There's no recognition of that by the church fathers um, that this carried on in any way. This goes to show that Peter had a very specific and authoritative role that no longer exists in the church today. He mentions his apostleship in order that those reading would recognize his authority. So he's starting off this letter. He's saying, this is Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ. Boom, all right. He's, he's basically laying it out. I have authority here. I'm speaking on behalf of God, and, um, and you ought to listen. All right. Moving on, let's go to verse 1 that states, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So what does it mean to be elect exiles? The idea that those Peter was writing to were elect exiles presents what appears to be a type of contradiction. How can you be chosen yet rejected, embraced yet scorned, included yet excluded? They, they seem to conflict in a way. They actually work together, though, to explain the life of a Christian. God's elect will look different than the world, and because of this, they will live as exiles in it. So what does the Bible specifically mean here when it says elect? We get the word elect from the Greek term eklektos. This is good to remember. Which in Thayer's Greek lexicon means chosen by God to obtain salvation through Christ. Pretty, pretty explicit there. There's an abundance of scripture pointing to God's electing work in salvation. Peter states in chapter 2 verse 9 that his audience is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. One of my favorite verses and also a section of scripture that really solidified my understanding of election and God's sovereignty and salvation is Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Let's go to Ephesians 1 and um, we're going to examine, if you have a Bible, go to Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. In it, Paul states, starting in verse 4, that he chose us in him, this is Jesus, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. So when we look through that, he predestined us to adoption. I think that's, that's one of the unbelievable things. When you look at how God saves sovereignly and we look at how adoption works, I think it's a great analogy also because uh, an adopted child doesn't typically get to choose the parent. The parent comes in and chooses the child. Um, It's a beautiful picture of the gospel and what God does for us when he saves us. We don't get to choose our father. Our father chooses us. 
according to the kind intention of his will. So it's his will. It's all him. Could, is anybody back there? I'm getting a little feedback. Um, if you could pull me back. Thanks, JJ. Um, yeah, this is just, this solidified it for me when I was examining scripture and talking to people um, about God's election. What is this election? Um, it's not this broad term that everyone, that be, if you believe in God, then you become elect. No, you are, are, you are elect according to the kind intention of his will. Another verse that applies to what we're looking at tonight would be 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Um, in the New American Standard Version, it reads, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, lo- beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. I mean, that, that hits on so much of what we're going to talk about tonight. God chose you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification, which we're going we're gonna to hit on in verse 2 of 1 Peter, and faith in the truth. I mean, that, that's a great summation of the gospel work and how faith is essential in it. It's awesome. The last verse I want to look at in regards to election is Romans 8, 29 through 30. And then we're going to jump ahead to verse 33. So let's go to Romans 8. Because this is one that we, we really need to know as Christians. Um, this was another one that well, when I was wrestling and learning about election, um, Romans 8 was huge. So it starts in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then skipping to verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? There's that reference to God's elect. So it shows you how God works in salvation, what happens, the order, the sequence of salvation. And then he references that these are God's elect right inside that context. These initial verses are often referred to as the golden chain of redemption. It's kind of a a theological term. It outlines the ordo salutis, or order of salvation. It's God's sequence of sovereign salvation. It's a framework which allows us to see how God initiates and accomplishes our salvation entirely on his own. Soon after providing this order of salvation in verse 33, Paul asks rhetorically, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? The same Greek term, eklektos, from, from 1 Peter 1 that we talked about earlier, is used here in reference to the elect. Paul's emphasizing that no judgment or condemnation by others will result in thwarting God's sovereign work of salvation in the elect. God judges and God justifies. I love what Augustine says when he comments on this passage. He says, God elected believers in order that they might believe, not because they already believed. That's that's really important that we get that. There's an order. God is the initiator. So now that we understand what it means to be called elect, or we have a little overview, what does it mean for Peter to call them exiles? 1 Peter 2.4 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. To be exiles means to be rejected by men. The world won't accept you. Peter's saying if you're an elect exile, you're chosen by God and rejected by the world. You're to look like Jesus, loved by the Father, hated by the world. I think 
what we experience as far as suffering and, and being outcast today um, isn't like it was, obviously, in the first stages of the Christian church. Um, we're very spoiled in that way, but it's also a blessing. It's showing that God is working in history and bringing things, all things under um, his rule. I think that um, we can see uh, there's, there's a lot of, you talk to older adults or you, you just talk to people that are kind of dissatisfied with the way culture is headed. And I completely understand that. I see that. Um, but I think that we, we lose sight of how uh, Christianity has affected the culture that we're in today. We get to live with freedoms. Our, our government reflects God's law in many ways. Now, there are some really big ways in which it doesn't, and I think Christians should fight against that. But um, it kind of reminds me of like uh, how many churches we have. Um, my wife and I were driving through these uh, mountain towns a couple weeks ago in Virginia, and it's like a half-mile strip of maybe 40 homes and in that half-mile strip, as we were driving through this little mountain town, we saw seven churches all throughout here. And it was, it was cool to see. It also made me wonder, like, was there multiple church splits? Why are there so many churches? But it's, but it's a sign also that Christianity has affected this little enclave, this little group of people in a significant way where it's obvious that they are, on Sunday, people in that town are going to church because there's almost as many church buildings as there are houses. Um, so it's, it's just something to recognize, I think, and we need to encourage that. The problem is we have, we have these churches, um, but are we, are we teaching what Scripture says? So let's, let's go back to, uh, to, to that. To be exiles means to be rejected. Talked about that. Okay, so now that we have an understanding of what it means to be an elect exile, let's take a look at how our triune God works in accomplishing the salvation of those chosen people. So moving on to verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So that's the first prepositional phrase. Is, we're, we're talking about the foreknowledge of God the Father here. What is foreknowledge? And who is the Father? Let's talk about, a little bit about um, who the Father is. I think it helps to know who the Father is not when we're talking about a person of the Trinity. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. The Father doesn't change, morph, or identify as either the Son or the Spirit at any point in time. This is of huge importance today for Christians because I think um, believing in one God eternally existing as three distinct, co-equal, co-eternal persons has kind of been lost within the church, or at least grasping it enough to be able to articulate it. We should encourage each other to, to seek this out, and I'm going to get into that later. So, so when we look at the Trinity, they're one in being, essence, nature, and purpose, completely unified yet distinct in their roles. Three who's and one what, if we were to look at it. The who's, Father, Son, Spirit. The what is God, the being of God. We need to remember that. If you are taking notes, remember three who's and one what. While many Christians will affirm the Trinity and maybe even say it's an essential doctrine, they won't seek to truly know and understand it, chalking the Trinity up to a mystery that we can't grasp, and therefore, we shouldn't spend any time concerning ourselves with the deep theological concepts that only serve to confuse people. The problem is, this is who God is. It's not a deep theological concept, it's actually who our Lord is. So we can't chalk it up to just a, um, a mystery um, that is 
incalculable. God has given us enough revelation to understand the Trinity and the way our minds can grasp it. Now, we'll never completely grasp um, the infinite wisdom and glory of God, but we can at least understand through his revelation what he means, and we should be able, and this is the thing that separates Christianity from other things, which I'm going to get into. I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so this mindset is sinful when we, when we talk about, ah, let's not worry about the Trinity, let's focus on the important stuff, the love of God or the gospel, and those things are important. But it's sinful to reject that we should be pursuing an understanding of the Trinity. If you have any knowledge of church history or have interacted with any of the cults such as LDS or Jehovah's Witness, you know the issue of the Trinity is primary. Um, A lot of times when you're dealing with a Mormonism, they will reject the Trinity and uh, affirm polytheism, which is a belief in many gods. You can become a god. I can become a god. Um, God was once a a man who became a god. so, so there's a very different framework that gets lost in a lot of similar language. Um, same thing with the Jehovah's Witness. They believe that Jesus was Michael the Archangel. They do not. They reject the Trinity. Um, they believe the Spirit is not a person. Um, there, there's, there's very, very important distinctions that actually affect how we view salvation, how we view Scripture. Um, it's, it's important that we start with the Trinity. It's not a secondary issue. It affects all aspects of theology, as I just said. We need to be equipped to handle tough questions. As Peter says in chapter 3, we should always be prepared to make an offense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. So we need to be able to have these conversations as Christians. We need to be equipped. So back to who the Father is. He's the first person of the Trinity. He's unbegotten while Christ is begotten of the Father. This provides a relational context within the Trinity, Father and Son. This does not mean, however, that the Father created the Son. He didn't. The Father sent out Christ into the world to accomplish redemption. So they are co-equal, co-eternal. There is a, an equal equality within the Trinity. Father is not greater than the Son. The Father sent out Christ into the world to accomplish redemption and subsequently sent out the Holy Spirit into the world to indwell the elect. Christ is also attributed with sending out the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 3, we see he verbally proclaims Jesus to be his son, sends down the Holy Spirit during his baptism, initiating Christ's ministry. In John 6, we see that the Father gives the elect to Christ. Examining Isaiah 53, we see that the will of the Father was that the Son be crushed. The Father also foreknows, which is what we're going to talk about today. So these are all ways in which the Father interacts within the Trinity and also with us. But now we're going to move on to his foreknowledge, which is talked about here in 1 Peter verse 2. Foreknowledge of God the Father. We see that those who are elect are elect according to the foreknowledge of, of him, the Father. Biblically, for God to know you does not mean that he is aware of you. So for God to know you in Scripture is not just to know of you, but it's an intimate knowledge. Um, in uh, Genesis, Adam knows Eve and she is with child after that. There is a, that, that is an intimacy, and, and that's the same type of intimacy that we're talking about. Not a sexual intimacy, but a spiritual intimacy that we feel with the Father. He's not merely conscious of your existence, but this type of foreknowledge is an act of love. It's an active love also. In Matthew 7, Jesus states, the workers of lawlessness who claim they did miracles in his name, Jesus says to them, I never knew you. That's not like, I didn't know about you. Jesus 
knew about them. But he's saying that he, he will say, I never knew you. That's, that's an intimate knowledge, a spiritual knowledge, a communion with God. 2 Timothy 2, we see Paul say that the Lord knows those who are his. Jesus states in John 10, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. There's that intimate communion, that knowledge that God has of us is a love. The foreknowledge of the Father is essentially the forelove of the Father, if we were to sort of make up a word there. It's an intimate, salvific knowing. Peter's making clear that believers are elect according to the pre-existent love that God had for you before you were even existing, before you were even conceived. The names of the elect were written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The grace expressed by the elect, or to the elect by the Father through his foreknowledge should consistently humble us. The beauty of the gospel is that anyone who truly believes on the Lord is truly foreknown by the Father and is counted among the elect. So Peter is beginning his epistle by pointing out that these saints and all the past saints, present and future, are foreknown by the Father, and he follows this by stating that the elect will experience sanctification by the Holy Spirit. So let's go into the next phrase here. For obedience to Jesus Christ, I'm I'm sorry, (laughs) the foreknowledge of God the Father. So we have, to those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit. So what is sanctification of the Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He does miraculous work of God in the lives of believers. He changes us. He's the worker of sanctification. Sanctification, put simply, is growing in holiness. It's what follows after we're regenerated, brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. True saving faith in Christ follows regeneration. Regeneration is God giving us a new heart, a new spirit. This is then followed by a life which is marked by sanctification. So upon regeneration, upon that new heart, that new spirit, we're now living a life of sanctification. But are we responsible for that sanctification? Do we have anything to do with it? I would argue no if we look at um, Scripture logically here and take it um, with a simple approach. This text, sanctification, is said to be of the Spirit, not of you and the Spirit. The Spirit sanctifies. So who accomplishes it? God the Spirit. Sanctification by the Spirit is something that he does to us and in us. There's a great parallel between regeneration and sanctification. We view regeneration as the sovereign work of God in which we do not cooperate. What follows regeneration is true faith, true belief on our part. This faith is the fruit of our regeneration. Likewise, the fruit of sanctification is good works, obedience to God's law. Any good we do is because of God's grace in sanctifying us. Our salvation is totally and completely due to God's sovereign work. Sanctification is an essential part of salvation. Therefore, sanctification is completely due to God's sovereign work. So if we look at salvation simply, the the grand scope of our salvation, we have regeneration, we're justified by faith, we're sanctified, and then we're glorified. And when we look at all of those, in all those areas, we see that God is working in every one. He's responsible in every single one. So if we 
say God's responsible and then halfway through say, oh, and this is up to me, then we've now stripped God in the midst of our salvation of his sovereignty. But we do have responsibility, and we're actually going to be moving on to that next. But I want to talk a little bit more about sanctification. Our pastor's been going through 1 Corinthians and went through chapter 3, where Paul states that he planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God is responsible for our spiritual growth. I think that's really important to hit on, because if God isn't responsible, then we don't give God glory for the spiritual growth that does occur. When defining sanctification, the Westminster Larger Catechism states, uh, it it defines it really well. I love this uh, definition. It's kind of long, but here it is. Sanctification is a work of God's grace, whereby they whom God hath before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy are in time, through the powerful operation of his spirit, applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them, renewed in their heart and their whole man after the image of God, having the seeds of repentance unto life, and all other saving graces put into their hearts, and those graces so stirred up, increased, and strengthened, as they more and more die unto sin and rise unto newness of life. I know that was long, but um, it hits on how God chooses us through the powerful operation of the Spirit, applying what Christ did to us and changing it, changing us. We are renewed. And then we have seeds of repentance, a life of killing sin, loving God more, growing in holiness. So we can't sanctify ourselves. The Spirit of God can and does. Does that mean we aren't responsible to live according to God's moral standards? Can we just blame God for our lack of sanctification? Can we, be, can we live morally apathetic lives as God's elect? That would be hyper-Calvinism or um, some strange form of... Um, of non-responsibility in our lives, which we see throughout all the epistles them calling them to good works and obedience. No, we're called to obedience. We have a responsibility to follow God's law. And Peter shows us in the next line that a sure sign of the elect is someone who is marked by submission to Christ. So moving on, we're slowly getting through this, guys. For obedience to Jesus Christ is the next line. So we have... To those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. All right. So obedience is an interesting thing. I um, I know uh, a local pastor, who I won't um, I won't give the name, but he he recently gave a message where he talked about obedience and what it looks like to to tithe and serve in the church. And what he said was, I don't want the church and and I don't want something from you, I want something for you. So in that equation, we have what the local church wants, and then we have what you want, and what he's saying is, if you serve the church, he wants something for you, the blessings that come with serving the church. But what he's left out of the equation is God. So I think in in this text, it's so clear, obedience to Jesus Christ who are we obeying? Christ. Whose glory? Who gets the glory? God. There, there is no, we don't do things. We don't obey to get. We obey because we're submitting to what Christ, what God says we ought to do. And we, we obviously can find joy in that, but that's a byproduct. Who we do this for is so important. And I think a lot of times when you speak like that, when you say, <laughs> when you say, use phrases like that, it becomes all about the man, all man-centered 
um, do this and get this blessing. And that's really a form of um, religion that I think permeates throughout. Do this, get this. It's the same thing with Catholicism. It's just a different form. So you have these, um, I'll, I'll say, very liberal churches that say um, live a life um, of, of general obedience, let's say, or serve at the church or, or what have you, and you'll receive blessing. Tithe, you'll receive blessing. And then you have, you have the Catholic church who says, you know, follow the sacraments and you're saved. It's the same type of system, though. It's, it's all works-based. And the problem is, when it's all works-based, it's all reliant on you and what you're doing. Um, and God is, is taken out of the equation. Basically, God's just created a framework for you to um, get your blessing. And he's kind of a, a secondary character in the whole thing. So in this, this epistle, Peter elaborates on what obedience to Christ is. In the up- upcoming weeks, we'll probably be going into this subject a lot more. I know that uh, obedience is a common theme throughout 1 Peter. But for now, I'd like to point out a couple verses that will give us a better idea of what biblical obedience looks like. In chapter 1, verse 14, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He also says, be holy in your conduct. He's telling them, instead of following the worldly ways of your past conduct, uh, conduct yourself in a righteous way now. We're to seek to live in adherence to God's standards. Do good, hate sin. It's simple, but <laughs> we don't do it well. In chapter 4, verse 7 through 10, Peter exhorts the readers to be self-controlled and sober-minded. For the sake of your prayers, loving one another earnestly, showing hospitality without grumbling, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ. Peter's stating that all these good works are for God's glory, not for personal gain or recognition. He encourages reverent prayer, and too often I think the practice of prayer becomes merely a habit before a meal or before we go to sleep. Um, I've been really encouraged by brothers in this church to, to emphasize prayer more in my personal life. And I think that as Christians, we, we need to seek accountability if we see ourselves lacking in a uh, spiritual discipline like that. Peter's saying that we need to fight the temptation to be distracted or disengaged during prayer. I see a real problem that, uh, with that in the church today. Um, we're so accustomed to being visually stimulated and entertained that the idea of 30 minutes of prayer would cause uh, extreme anxiety in the church, it seems. Um, though it seems overwhelming, Christians down through the ages have given themselves to extended periods of prayer, hours and hours in many churches. Um, many pastors have led services that were um, hours and hours, filling up the entire Sunday and with, with long extended times of prayer. It's be- prayer is beautiful because it allows us to communicate praise, confess sin, seek repentance, and experience communion with God. Peter says we're to love one another. This is how... This is Christ-like obedience. Um, prayer incorporated with loving one another. I think communal prayer, while also praying on our own, but communal prayer is so important. So we, we should be practicing that. We shouldn't be, uh, when we meet together with Christians, um, I, I think a lot of times people, people get bashful. I know, I know I have been in the past um, just speaking up, but it's, it's a, an act of worship when we um, pray to God in uh, a community, in a group setting. When Jesus summarizes the law by saying that we are to love God and love neighbor, we should take that seriously. Jesus affirms the law. He doesn't reject the law, contrary to what a lot of people um, 
say today that the law has, has just been completely abolished. We're to just cut ourselves off from the Old Testament. That would be a wrong way of thinking about God's law. Adherence to the perfect law of God is the ultimate act of obedience. Unfortunately, we can't keep that law while we should seek it. We need a sacrificial work in order to be justified by God. We need a perfect sacrifice. And that's what Peter references in the, uh, in the next phrase here. So he moves on to, for sprinkling with his blood. So we're in verse 2 of chapter 1, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Reference to the blood of Christ can be found in the first chapter of many New Testament books. This fact indicates the importance and centrality of Christ's effectual work on the cross and how necessary it is for the apostles to communicate this truth. In this section, Peter seems to be referencing Exodus 24, in which the Israelites were sprinkled with sacrificial blood, which indicated God's inclusion of them into the covenant and resulted in their required faithfulness to God. Peter is stating here that just as the Israelites vowed to be faithful to God and were sprinkled with sacrificial blood as part of the old covenant, in the new covenant, we pledge obedience to God as the atoning sacrifice of Christ, effectually bringing us into the new covenant. We're made clean through the blood of Christ. I love that parallel between what happened in the Old Testament and what happened in the new. We're now presentable because of Christ's death, because of his atoning work, his blood being sprinkled. We are seen as holy because of Christ's holiness. His blood covers our sins. This redeeming work is the reason why we as believers can be filled with peace. Christ lived perfectly, shouldered the weight of sin, shed his blood for the iniquity of those who would believe, was raised on the third day, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And because of all this, we can experience the grace and peace of God. That's so beautiful. That's the gospel. And, and I ask that if anyone here doesn't know that, doesn't believe that, that you, would, um, that you would really meditate on it, that you would repent and turn to Christ, that you would believe this word. Um, it's, it's really, I think that we can go through the motions in the church and we can hear as a Christian those truths and it be, can become stale. Um, don't let it become stale. Let, that, let the gospel be something that renews you consistently. Um, I think that... Uh, that we need to be encouraging each other in those areas too because saying it, when we, when we sing a worship song, I was, I was thinking this tonight. I was thinking, do I believe this? this? What I'm singing here, do I believe this? And am I living like I believe this? And, and what's really easy is to sing a song and sort of shut off your brain and experience um, worship. And uh, I kind of, <laughs> this, this has slightly to do with this, but... This is more of just, I think, practical application. We, we really, uh, we go through the motions with these things like prayer and worship, but is it really sinking into our soul? Are we thinking about these words? Are we meditating? Are we walking away with confidence saying, yes, that is me, that person that, that, that's saying those words about who God is. I believe that and I live that. <coughs> if you do not believe that the gospel, the gospel message and have not placed your faith in Christ, repent of your sins. That's the bottom line when it comes to hearing that message. All right, moving on to the very last phrase. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter ends this epistolary greeting by utilizing the phrase grace and peace. This phrase, this phrase was expressed by readers 
to the, in the readers in Philippians, Corinthians, and many of Paul's writings. He uses the term grace and peace consistently in his greetings. Um, while the Apostle Paul commonly used this, Peter adds grace and peace be multiplied to the readers. He desires that the grace and peace grow exponentially in them. This means Peter presupposes that they already have received the unmerited favor, the grace of God, and the contentness or peace from God. They already have the spirit who gives the good gifts to the believers. This spirit is changing the elect. Peter's stating that he desires for the blessing that come with being indwelt with the spirit to grow even more. It's an expression of his love for the believers in this area. And who multiplies grace and peace in the believers? God. God alone. Peter's reminding us that as believers, we should anticipate growth in the peace and grace which God gives. We should expect it. And if we don't see it in our lives, we should be convicted about that. So tonight, we've learned that all the elect will be saved. The elect are saved through God's, God the Father's foreknowledge or forelove, through sanctification by God the Spirit, through the atoning work of God the Son so that we may live obedient lives according to Christ for the glory of God. That's how I would summarize tonight. But Peter is giving me a thoroughly triune framework by which to understand how God saves. The three persons of the Trinity work in complete unity and harmony to accomplish the salvation for the elect. So why does Peter begin this letter with such explicitly triune language? We could have said God, he could have said, God foreknows, God sanctifies, God atones, and he would have been absolutely correct. But as we talked about before, the Father is God. The, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Peter shows that recognizing the role distinctions within the Trinity is necessary for believers. Peter is giving readers a foundation on which they can build throughout the rest of the letter, or which he can build throughout the rest of the letter. He's recognizing the importance of knowing who God is. It's imperative that you and I know who God is. God's three persons, one being, as we said before. These persons share in the divine essence. They're fully God. I really want to keep hitting this because I think that it's, it's essential that we get this right. As Christians, we should seek to continually grow in our knowledge of who God is. The Trinity is where we should begin when we're attempting to understand God better through his revealed word. The Trinity is the starting point of our theology, not the end game. That's really important. So it's, it's not, um, well, let me just grow a little more, let me just seek out a little more, and I'll eventually move on to understanding the Trinity. No, it's important that we start there because that's who God is. Don't neglect it. <clears throat> Peter uses the triune framework also to explain how God saves through the sovereign election of God's foreknowledge, as we talked about before, the work of Christ is applied through the sanctification of the Spirit. This greeting gives us an overview of how thoroughly Trinitarian the gospel is. Without the Trinity, we have no gospel. Without the Trinity, we cannot understand who God has revealed himself to be, and we can't understand how God saves the people for his own glory. As Christians, we must know the Trinity. So here it is. I'm going to hit it again. <laughs> Within the one being of God, there exists eternally three co-equal, co-eternal persons. This would be really good to write down if you're a good, quick writer. So within the one being of God, there exists eternally three co-equal, co-eternal persons. The Father, the Spirit, and the Son. And we're to know the, the gospel. 
So we, we've just gone through the Trinity, and here's the gospel, simplified. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for God's glory alone. Those are called the five solas. These two things um, encapsulate what Orthodox Christianity is, what we have to believe as faithful Christians. We should be able to give a defense, as Peter talks about later in this letter, and understanding what we believe and who we believe uh, in is, is really important. So I just exhort you to study God's word, learn about who he is. As a Christian, do you affirm that God is the most important? If you do affirm that he's most important, then you should want to know him better. If you say, my, my priorities are my relationship with God, knowing him more, if we say that, I was, as I was talking about before, with the songs we sing and the prayers we give, if we, say, if we are, are putting that out there, then we should live accordingly. So examine your lives to determine, is God most important? Chances are you don't know him as well as you could. Do you meditate on his attributes? Do you observe the mutual love that is shared between the persons of the Trinity? Does the knowledge of the Son interceding for us draw you to deeper worship? Knowing God more will result in richer times of prayer, reading, and worship. If you say you love God, seek to know him so that you may ultimately better glorify him. I want to end with a quote from J.I. Packer from his book, Knowing God. He says, What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we can know you and we can know your gospel, the revealed word that we have in front of us today, that we can go to that We can gain intimacy with you through this word. Your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It, It pierces us, God, and I just pray that we would allow scripture throughout this semester to pierce us, to change us. There's power in God's word, and I pray that through your Holy Spirit that we would be changed to look more like you, to know you more, to love your gospel, and to believe um that you will accomplish your purposes within your church, but also to be a means that you use in that. God, I pray that the Christians here tonight, that we would be convicted, myself included, and just thank you for your word speaking. I pray that we would take this, apply it, live this out, that we would mean the things that we sing and say, and that we would, we would be devoted to you in all areas, God. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.